This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. It took courage and grace for Kim Kardashian to address her husband's mental illness. We talk bipolar disorder tonight. Also, Jen Murtag, women's coach extraordinaire, joins me to discuss male incivility and patriarchal power. There's a new breastfeeding app, and I bear all about my own breastfeeding challenges. Hint, I bottle-fed the rest. When a neuroscientist says you know more than they do, go ahead, Ward Plunet, make my day. We're talking super-agers. Dr. Gurdi Parhar joins me to talk masks and the new drug on the street, Down. And finally, glory, glory be, glory holes and other safe sex practices with Eric, the sex nurse. My next guest coaches female leaders to live and lead bravely. An award-winning C-suite exec, she's a connector and community champion, recognized as Business in Vancouver's 40 Under 40, also a recipient of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade Women of Promise Award. She is none other than the vibrant Jen Murtag. Jennifer, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, Maureen. Great to be on. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, Let's get right into it. This week, uh, this is a subject that's very dear to my heart um, because it's happened to me. Uh, But this week, a ranking member of the House of Representatives in the U.S., Ted Yoho's vile diatribe at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, also um, in the House of Representatives, on the steps of the House, was a perfect example of what many women, myself included, have experienced on on the street, in their homes, at their workplaces, which is where I've experienced it. This is an example of patriarchal power. What exactly is that? Yeah, well, for those unfamiliar with patriarchal power, it really consists of a male-dominated power structure, uh, both in society and in individual relationships. Um, So, you know, after generations of being in charge as the more dominant power group, white men in privilege kind of set up this structure in society based on the needs and preferences of other men just like them. And since, you know, power is related to privilege, men have some level of privilege to which women really aren't as entitled. You know, we still live in a society which often expects women to be subordinate to men, you know, at home, in the boardroom, and as you see, (laughs) played out um, recently in U.S. politics. Exactly. And so, yeah, it's really, you know, women like AOC who anchor into their power, uh, scare men like Ted Yoho, whether, you know, he's kind of conscious of it or and, not. And what I find is, is bizarre is that, um, you know, he's in like late 50s, early 60s or something, and she's, you know, late 20s or 30. She's young, much younger. And he called her, and he has daughters that are a little bit younger or, you know, right around her age. He called her an F and B. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't say it on the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he continued to say, you know, you're disgusting. And he kept escalating the situation. And he was saying, you're unbelievable and you're disgusting and just screaming at her. And this was within earshot of uh, somebody from the Hill. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, um, and then he goes on to give this non apology, basically, and, you know, behaving uh, in a very mendacious way, um, Mm -hmm. you know, to and and also then associate himself with his wife, who I feel sorry for, and his two daughters. Um, And so let's try and unpack some of that. Yeah. (laughs) You know, really, I, I honestly, you know, I watched it and I and I think it's a few things, but I think it's his lack of understanding of his own unconscious bias towards women. And, you know, by mentioning his daughters and his wife, he, he was really just deflecting his gender-based abusive behavior. Just because you live with a woman or you have a daughter doesn't mean you don't hold a bias against women. And cohabitation with women does not necessarily mean you respect women. 
you know, similarly to, um, you know, if you have a black friend, that doesn't mean you're not a racist. Like we all have to do work to understand the biases we hold because our biases inform our actions, how we perceive things and how we make decisions. I um, believe he probably very unaware of his. <laughs> absolutely. But I believe he probably most likely treats his wife and daughters in the same fashion that he treated AOC. I, oh, yeah. I'm yeah. sure it's not an isolated incident. Yeah, for sure. Which is why I feel sorry for his um, wife and I hope she speaks up. So why is it important that we or leave? Anyway, <laughs> let's get drastic here. <laughs> why is it important that uh, women speak up? It's so difficult for women to speak up. And to be honest, I mean, I speak all the time and it was extremely difficult for me to speak up to this person who had bullied me and also a number of other women. I was not the only mm-hmm. woman that he bullied. And, um, and he, he was a sociopath. Another story. Um, so why is it important and how can women speak up? You're a leadership coach. Yeah, well, first of all, nothing will change if we remain silent. And so we owe it to the women coming up in their careers now and then the next ones and then the next ones. You know, one of my favorite quotes is by Audre Lorde. She's a feminist and a civil rights activist. And she said, when I dare to be powerful, to use my strengths in the service of my vision, then it becomes less and less important whether I'm afraid. So we need to follow AOC's lead and we need to be less afraid to speak out. But it, it for sure is, it is hard. Um, there's a lot of different things that women can do, really depending on the circumstances that happen at work. You know, a lot of women are um, subject to harassment in the workplace, whether that be verbal harassment, sexual harassment. Um, you know, and so there's a lot of different things. I mean, there are some things that women can do, but then there are the culture of workplaces really need to change as well so that it makes it easier for women to bring complaints forward for the systems to be set up to support women because these things are going to happen. Women are going to experience sexism and misogynistic attitudes in the workplace, whether it's with their colleagues or clients or leaders within their organizations. And, you know, it is rare to find a woman who hasn't had to navigate through this, you know, as AOC outlined really well in her speech, right? It comes in different forms of harassment. Um, and so there's a few things that women need to consider if they, if they, you know, if they feel they are harassed in the workplace. So when it happens and if they feel safe to do so, it's really important to establish boundaries with whoever is perpetrating. So, you know, it's not okay to talk to me like that. You're not allowed to touch me. Like letting the person know that their treatment of you is not going to be tolerated. That is really important. It's also really important to write it down. So you need to record date and time, what was said, who was there, how it made you feel, you know, keep records in a safe place. Like, for example, email them to a personal email account. Don't keep them on your computer at work. Um, talk to a close friend or a work, uh, close friend or a work friend about it because you're going to need support. And then obviously talk to your employer about the incident. Um, A lot of women don't, um, you know, let their employers know when there's been some sort of harassment. But if we are going to make any change, women do need to come forward. You can also consider talking to a lawyer about it if it's something quite serious. There are free legal advice organizations that can give you advice and are set up specifically to support women through, um, you know, navigating situations like this. Jen Murtag, thank you so much. We'd love to have you back because I'd love to talk about this further. Thanks for being on the program. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Have a good night. Uh, My next guest uh, has a fabulous new app. As I mentioned um, leading up to this in the the previous segment, um, it's a slight reminder who delivers 
babies in this world, it's women. Okay. Who feeds them? It's women. Sometimes we do it well. Sometimes we have difficulty. And to be totally honest with you, I could have used this breastfeeding app (laughs) for my first (laughs) and then I ditched it uh, after the rest anyway, which is unfortunate because uh, if this breastfeeding app had been around... When I was breastfeeding, well, then things might have turned out slightly differently. Joining me on the line from way down under is Madeline Sands, and she has created this new breastfeeding app called Help Me Feed. Good evening, Madeline. Good evening. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. This is the truth. I could have used this breastfeeding app. I had a hell of a time. (laughs) I don't really like to talk about my personal life, to be honest with you, but I just have to here. And you know what made it even worse is that a woman uh, from Balache League, which is a great organization, they just happened to send a woman over to me who was the mother of four and also had a new baby, and I only had one, <laughs> and I was about ready to do, uh, I mean, it was it was horrific. I ended up having a failure to thrive. Yes, a nurse had a thrill- failure oh. to thrive baby, but then the other part of it was that I just this woman with four children and then breastfeeding the fourth one in, in my house trying to help me. <laughs> anyway, so might have been nice to have a breastfeeding app. So I'm so glad that you have created this. So tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, so we work with health professionals and breastfeeding experts and we're there to bridge the gap between their face-to-face visits. So we know there's a really big issue um, the best kind of support is always going to be the face-to-face, right? So it's when that, when your breastfeeding um, helper was able to come to your house and she can sit in front of you and she can watch the baby feed and kind of figure things out. Um, but unfortunately, and I'm sure you know this, babies don't always work to a schedule. And so it's often hard to get them to do what you want when that expert's there. Um, and it's also a lot of the time really overwhelming. Like there's a lot of advice that's coming at you all at once. Usually it can be 30 minutes or an hour. And it can be quite overwhelming. And then you get home or that expert leaves and sometimes you feel like, oh man, I'm back to where I started or I feel, you can feel even more frustrated because you think, oh, this expert's come, I should be able to do this and now my baby's doing something completely different and I can't figure this out again. And my mother was there and I just want to say that I also had the pressure of my mother saying, put a bottle in that baby's mouth. Oh. So I had it from both, from both, mm-hmm. um, you know, just my own desire and then my mother, which is a, w- quite influential. <laughs> um, 100%. Yes. And I'm sure as well, you know, you've got all that extra pressure from yourself as well, mm-hmm. where you feel like this is, this is what you, you know, you go, you, you have a baby, especially now we have babies and we have such a plan of exactly how we're going to do it. We know how we want to have the birth go. We know what music we want to have. We've got the nursery set up. And sometimes, you know, you'll have a unique experience with a parent or you'll have a challenge and things suddenly aren't going to plan. And it's hard for us to then either readjust what that plan is um, or maybe realign things because a lot of pressure is put on that birth and you think, oh, that's the hardest bit. Everything after it's going to be easy, you know, like, it's that that's what we're focused on and then all of a sudden you get home and you've got all these people telling you all this different advice and you can't and you're you've got all the hormones going I mean it's a very difficult 
It's a challenging time for a lot of parents. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry that you had that. Oh, it was worse. It was worse happened. than <laughs> it was worse than that. I actually had outfits that I was going to answer the door in. Okay, my my friend was was I you know I had the breastfeeding nightgowns and the, that I was going to answer the door in this lounge outfit and that. I don't think I put a shirt on for three months, and then on top of it, I had mastitis ten times, and that's the truth. Oh. Ten times after yeah. having been hospitalized for hyperemesis gravidarum. It's a wonder I'm here today. Uh, <laughs> um, so it's, you know, it, I, I just want to make the point, and I'm, I'm just sharing this particular story um, because so many women out there have so much difficulty with breastfeeding that it's mm-hmm. so nice to have supportive technology. Definitely. And it's one of those things that I feel like we don't really put much emphasis on. You know, it's not something that you often see in the news. Um, it's not something that you really see people on the streets doing. And so it's almost like this hidden thing, but it's such a huge part of a woman's experience when they do give birth. Um, and so I'm really excited that, you know, where it's coming into more of a conversation now and people are coming, becoming aware of it and we are getting that support around it um, to be able to support parents and encourage them as well. I mean, I know that there's a, it, it's, you've got much higher rates if you've got people in the community who are positive about it and especially older women, you know, like your mum or your mother-in-law or your aunties and people, your neighbours. If you can see people who are breastfeeding, you know, to, to give them a smile, don't kind of look away and it's not a shameful thing, like it's a beautiful thing that that parent's trying to do um, and so it really should be encouraged. Absolutely. Now, tell me how this app works, Help Me Feed. Yeah, so we work with health professionals. So that could be either your um, your nurse that comes or it could be a private lactation consultant. And what we do is we're, we're there to bridge the gap between support. So when they've got their face-to-face with you or with COVID, you know, a lot of it's remote anyway. Right. Um, when you get home, you've got one place that you can go, which is the Help We Feed app. And that gives you a direct connection to that expert. So you can message them, they can send you resources, they can build programs, um, they might have specialised content that they can upload as well into the app. We have a selection of videos and documents that we've produced uh, with lactation consultants around the world, but they can also upload their own stuff in there if culturally it's more appropriate. Um, and it's to give it to you to be able to form that connection. So rather than getting sent home with a load of pamphlets, or getting told to jump on YouTube and look at this video. It's all within this one contained app that you know it's your one spot that you go, it's your connection with your health professional, um, and you can get all the help that you need from that one spot. It sounds fantastic. Now, where do people access this Help Me Feed app? Yes, we're on um, we're in the App Store and the Android Store, and it's something that needs to be um, that's provided by your health professional. So if you're a... Um, if you're a breastfeeding parent, it's, it would be a great thing for you to take to your health professional and say, hey, this would be able to help with our communication. Um, they can also jump on our website, which is helpmefeed.org, and they can sign up on there. The other thing that we're doing that we're trying to build as well is um, community coaches. And so we know that lactation consultants are usually, they have a lot of parents and parents don't always need help nine to five. So we're building a group of, um, of coaches from around the world. So if you're, you're on the app and you want to talk to someone, mainly for like a bit of emotional support. So if it's two o'clock in the morning and the baby's awake, you're awake, everyone else is asleep and you're feeling a bit isolated, 
you can jump on the app and talk to a coach and you could be matched with someone else from around the world and you can start having those conversations as well. And so we're looking, we're actively recruiting for any coaches. So you can also jump on our website and uh, send us a message and we'll be able to get you set up. That is wonderful. And you're going to be expanding this app as well, I understand. Pardon? You're going to be expanding the app as well? Do you have plans to expand? Yeah, so right now we're launching in Australia, um, Canada, the U.S., um, and over in Europe. And so the next stage is we're going to look at doing different languages. So right now we're only in English, um, but we're looking to do different languages. And And also growth growth charting and Billy Rubin indicators, are you doing those as well? Yeah, that's right. So it's another one. I know that in Canada you have, you're quite um, spread out the same as in Australia, a big issue for us is um, out in the communities. Some communities can often be, you know, three hours away from mm-hmm. the nurse. And so we're trying to work out some remote situations with Billy Rubin where we can provide that um, that monitoring, but the, the health nurse doesn't have to drive all the way out there to be able to monitor that. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Madeline. I think it's a fantastic app. I definitely could have used the growth charting weight and height <laughs> as well, which I became obsessed about after they told me the child was failure to thrive. Um, but the breastfeeding app is, is fantastic because so many women struggle with that. So thank you yeah, so much. Think, well, thanks for having me. I, I hope we'll be able to make a big difference to a lot of parents and hopefully stories like yours won't um, will stop being, stop being so... Uh, so common and won't be repeating in the future. Well, I think you've got, you're paving a great pathway ahead. So I really appreciate you taking the time with me this evening. I'm so glad I remember that number because it's important. As we age, there's something called super agers. And uh, I saw this posted on LinkedIn. You've heard his voice before on the program. He is a neuroscientist. His name is Ward Plunet, and he joins me on the line. Good evening, Ward. Hello. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Good. I'm sorry you can't be in studio, Ward. Oh, well, we all understand the situation. (laughs) Yes, we do. Uh, But thanks nonetheless for joining me this evening. I was very interested in a few of the articles that you've posted recently. So many people are concerned about dementia, about aging, not only living longer, which we seem to be doing quite well, but having a good quality of life. So tell me what these super agers are. Well, they're somewhat self-selected by their performance. So there's obviously different definitions of superagers by different researchers, but in general, this one paper that I posted talked about superagers performing, you know, above normal level, right? So let's say you're talking 80-year-old, business in this study they're all above 80, and let's say we're talking the upper uh, quartile of performance, or maybe in the top 10%. So these were the people who were getting A's in high school or university. Not that it's the same people, but equivalent to, um, you know, high-performing agers. Mm-hmm. So might they be still working, for example, in their 70s well, that, or 80s? Yes, that's one example. And I think we've all heard that, uh, you know, keeping your brain active is a very good thing. So the one part of the study is they found that people that were working at 70 tend to be the ones that have a higher potential of being one of these super agers. doesn't mean it guarantees you, but it increased the probability and that, again, goes along the idea you want to keep on using your mind as much as possible. But they did Many say time, paid work, which I thought was interesting versus volunteering. Yes. Now, I thought that so too, and I wasn't sure if they really 
had enough data to do the equivalent um, to compare it to, let's say, how many people are volunteering. But a lot of times when you're volunteering, if you're, let's say, handing out food, it's maybe not a high cognitive task. Right. Where if you're, you know, running a company or doing accounting or whatever, you know, there you need kind of, you know, quite active thinking, let's call it. Mm-hmm. That's true. I couldn't figure it out, to be honest with you, so... <laughs> I'm glad you did. Well, like again, Perhaps I'm somewhat, not a reading in between, somewhat reading in between the lines because the full paper isn't out um, yeah. or I couldn't get full access to it. Um, but we all know, like there's been plenty of other research that shows you want to keep an active brain and not necessarily doing the same thing. Like just like playing bridge is, you know, good cognitively. But if you've been doing it for 30 years, you know, maybe that wouldn't help you as much as doing something new. Right. So variety, as I always say, variety is the spice of life, but it's the same for your brain then, sounds like. Yes. Yes. Keep on learning, right? Um, You know, don't use age as an excuse like, oh, I can't learn. You know, you don't want to. We tend to inhibit ourselves when people age not to do new things. We're more fearful of new things, you know, be it, you know, playing poker or giving a speech. You know, you should try new things. Don't gamble, but try new things. Right. The other thing that was interesting was pulse pressure, an increasing pulse pressure was associated with cognitive decline. I'm always on about blood pressure with the people that I work with. And I I work with a lot of men. And, uh, and so I'm always educating them. And, you know, when I, so I was talking to them about this study and they all wanted their blood pressure taken (laughs) and which was at least they piqued their interest, you know, and they learned a little bit about it, but tell me about pulse pressure. Well, I think that's a good example is, you know, I have a lot of friends and colleagues that are always looking for the latest measurement of their health, right? You know, they're interested in health and longevity. But, you know, blood pressure is a very good measurement and we can do it repeatedly, right? So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's so much data that if you can control your blood pressure, middle age, obviously, including advanced age, it is, you know, multiple benefits, you know, throughout your whole body, including your brain. But pulse pressure in specific, it's maybe a relatively new term for people, but we're talking about blood pressure it's the difference between your high number and your low number, your systolic and diastolic. And it's just the difference in numbers. So a lot of people, you know, let's say they have relatively normal um, blood pressure would be, let's say, 120 over 80. So there's a 40 difference. Uh-huh. What you don't want is that number to keep on increasing with age. Now, it will tend to do it anyway, but you want to keep it, uh, you know, as low as reasonable. Right, because you can actually get your diastolic pressure can go up to, you know, 100, 110, and maybe your systolic is 145. So it could be that your pulse pressure is actually lower, like 35 if you're, you know, um, so, but it's just a bit of a marker, I would imagine. Yeah, and you probably are more knowledgeable than me, um, but it tends to when they're, you know, because the numbers are getting larger and larger, if they're proportionally going all up, then there is a larger difference in general. But, um, you know, keep it low anyway. So you don't want those high numbers anyway. Forgetting about, you know, necessary just the pulse pressure, you want to keep it that nice, healthy 120 over 80 or less. But, of course, that's harder as you age. That's right. And, and as it creeps up. I just have to pause for a moment that a neuroscientist just told me that I had more knowledge. than <laughs> You definitely do. You definitely do. <laughs> I don't think so. I am, I am uh, verklempt. Okay. Um, yeah. And it was really interesting because these, these guys, you know, one of them's blood pressure was a little bit high. He was around 30 years old, but his blood pressure is kind of creeping up into the 130s. And, and, you know, he had recently gained weight. He'd had an injury and he'd gained weight. And, and in this particular place where I work, they have to work out all the time. And he wasn't able to work out for like three or four months. And, you know, and he was lamenting about some of his choices 
his fast food choices, which um, he said, he, you know, he'd gained some weight and his, obviously his blood pressure has gone up. You know, I was talking to somebody else today and they were saying that the drive through restaurants, which are all the fast foods, they're doing amazing in this pandemic. I, do you think we, I mean, just as your opinion, we might see this effect on blood pressure um, in the pandemic? Um, well, again, I'm not expert on that, but we can imagine not only the fast food, obviously there's a little bit more stress in our life uh, because of this. Mm-hmm. Um but maybe we're not taking the time to, you know, cook our normal healthy meals and we're going out to the fast food restaurants compared to the more, let's say, fancy diners. Um, but, you know, a lot of factors and maybe people are not going to the gym. Uh, I do see people more running than mm-hmm. I have in the last 20 years in Vancouver. So yeah. I think that's encouraging. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I saw a statistic, I don't know where it was from, but it said 57% of people are not going to rejoin their gyms after the pandemic. And I don't, I don't even know why, but unless people are heading outside working out, you know, because of nature and it seems the virus is less contagious um, when people gather outside than when they do inside. Yes. I think I read similar stats is, um, but the same stats said, you know, people wouldn't be comfortable going uh, out you know, to a restaurant until, you know, later, you know, when we have a vaccine or whatever. Right. But the gym is the same thing is that, you know, you know, we have to go grocery shopping. We have to be inside among many other people, um, but we don't have to go to the gym. Right. Um, I've returned to the gym and I actually surprised of how few people do wear masks. So I would say only two out of 50 will wear a mask. Wow. They limit it to a certain number of people that was less than normal, but Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's just a young demographics, but not too many people wear masks. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting, that mask thing. Um, so what would you say, we just have about 30 seconds left. Um, what would you say is the, the most important thing um, if somebody wants to be a super ager, you know, stay sharp well into their 90s? All the simple things. Exercise. Uh, you know, do mental challenging things. Keep on learning. Eat healthy. Don't gain weight. Keep your blood pressure. You know, the same things we've been hearing for 20 years. And sugar? <laughs> I would avoid that in general, but that's part of kind of the healthy food. Eat whole foods. Yes. Keep it to that. Yeah, absolutely. Ward Plunet, thank you so much. Thanks for all the articles you share on LinkedIn. I certainly learn a lot from you. You are most welcome. Have a good evening. Thank you. Same to you and stay well, my friend. He is a clinical professor at the University of British Columbia, a medical doctor who is dealing every day on the front lines of COVID-19. He is the one and only Dr. Gurdi Parhar. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Good evening, Maureen. Uh, a lot of great uh, topics tonight, but I have to start with a question to you first. Do you think maybe <laughs> when you're talking about ankle sprains and your paddle boards, <laughs> that maybe you could reduce the incidence of ankle sprains if you didn't have like a foot on two different paddle boards? Just a thought. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, that was problematic. <laughs> just, you know, safety first. I just, my uh, a- I'd my share acrobatic that finesse there. <laughs> oh, yeah, anyway, yeah, I can't even get into it. <laughs> It was a disaster. That's all I can say. Um, You know, I just want to do a little um, barometer check here on COVID-19. Just a few touch points. Alberta reached a pandemic milestone on Friday, surpassing 10,000 total cases of COVID-19 as the province recorded 111 new cases over that previous 24 hours. There were close to 400 cases and seven deaths at last count in Manitoba. And in British Columbia, the hotspot seems to be the Okanagan. So 
things are getting a little uncomfortable and um, and cases are a little bit on the rise. I have to say I, I've been wearing a mask. As you know, I, I wear it in my clinical practice. I wear it wherever I go. You know, I came into the studio. There's no one else here. Brendan's on the other side of the, of the uh, window. But I feel naked without my mask. <laughs> It's, it's, it's the look. It's, I think it's just the new look. It's yeah. the total look. Um, the ferries, you know, there. I've had a little ferry travel this weekend, and and you know, eighty percent of people are wearing their masks outside on the ferries. Um, My you know, partner was just saying that even because um, she's better at uh, grocery um, purchasing than I am, was saying that you know, in any grocery store, if there's even one person not wearing a mask, you get a look. Um, so it is something that's not, uh, you know, it, it, it's becoming a norm. There's a, there's a little COVID um, shaming out there. I had an experience that I might share um, last weekend. I uh, might share a little bit. I'm just sharing about myself so much tonight. Um, but you know what? Actually, Janet Brown, um, I noticed a tweet uh, from her, Janet Brown, who is a fabulous reporter for CKNW in Vancouver. She said that um, in the town where she lives, you know, nobody was wearing masks. There was no social distancing. The grocery store was jam-packed. There were no lineups, you know, people believe or think that the pandemic is no longer a threat. And so, you know, this might be geographical. Yeah, so Maureen, there's been all sorts of stories, and I think people have heard about the, the the drumming down at the beaches in Vancouver on Tuesday evenings. But you mentioned Alberta, and you and I both have lots of friends and colleagues, and I did a lot of training in Alberta. There's been, um, as you said, there was a point um, last this past week where Alberta had more per capita cases than even Ontario and Quebec, and so that worries us. And two hotspots that happened in Alberta were, um, one was at a ride cycle in Calgary, um, where there was a fitness club where mm. um, I think there were 42 cases. Just to tell you that while the gyms are rolling out, and, and you said earlier about people canceling or not attending gyms, and I understand the risks, but for people going, as long as all the precautions are there, and unfortunately there was a outbreak um, at this ride cycle. And the other, unfortunately, was something a little bit more casual. It was a Canada Day barbecue. And um, the people that hosted it and the people that attended are quite, um, you know, I, I, really, um, I really respected their insight and, and the reflection saying, you know, we kind of messed up. We were all uh, locked down and we were bored and we thought we'd have this barbecue. And interestingly, Maureen, um, the people that were outside um, and didn't go, come into the house as much weren't as weren't as much at risk. And so there weren't as many positive cases from those people. But the ones that spent some time indoors at this particular barbecue social setting did. And, I, you know, quoting them, they said it spread like wildfire. But it just goes to remind us that um, we're not not in any way out, out of uh, out of the storm here, and and even sim- very simple benign kind of get-togethers can cause an outbreak. And you mentioned the Okanagan, we're sold. There's about a thousand people that we're monitoring closely, and and you know I can say that across the country. So we really have to be careful. And this is the definition of the second wave right now. Uh, absolutely, and um, you know there was a I did read about that barbecue that that occurred in Calgary, and and I did um, have a tremendous amount of respect for sharing their, for them sharing their story. Um, if you're in Alberta and you have any other insight on why the cases are rising, give us a call one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. You know, I made a terrible error. <laughs> 
<laughs> and was COVID shamed for it and highly embarrassed about it. Uh, but there's a, a bike, a mountain bike ride that occurs in Vancouver called the Triple Crown. And um, so my husband was involved in that uh, last weekend. And afterward, and, and it's been going on for you know a number of years. And afterward, there's a barbecue that's held on a bar- on a deck, um, on a private in a at a private home, somebody's deck. They have a big deck, and you know I was so busy, I wasn't thinking, and and you know the communication is poor at the best of times in the sex birds relationship, <laughs> and so my husband never said anything either. And uh, but I got to this house, and I was thinking like I don't, I don't want to stay long. I don't you know I was feeling you know I I just didn't think to speak up. Make a long story short. I, I went and usually it's husbands and wives that are invited. And so I went in and I went to the deck and, uh, the guys were saying, Oh, have you been, are you, are you being brought in to give us a sex talk? And, and I, that's it because there were no other women there. <laughs> and then I said, well, where are the other women? Don't forget I'm blonde. And I walked in and, and, you know, two women that I know very well, and they weren't as welcoming as usual. And when I was kind of thinking, you're having this and, you know, so then all of a sudden it dawned on me that, and I said, oh my gosh, am I not supposed to be here? Not only was I not supposed to be here, but no wives were supposed to be there. Just, um, the one who owned the house and, and one other friend. And so obviously I wasn't the chosen one and you know, the, it got worse. I had actually bought these Ray-Bans the week before and they were too big for me. And so I had tape on my Ray-Bans as I <laughs> snuck out of that house, but I left immediately and I felt horrific, you know, um, because they were, and they said, no, the COVID-19, you know, and, and they had everybody out on the deck only and nobody was coming indoors, but you know what? I didn't speak up and ask. And I think, you know, if I could do that, how many others out there uh, can do that, right? Make that mistake. You know, so it wasn't intentional by any stretch of the imagination. But um, And, and, and Maureen, thanks for sharing that. And I think that that's what lets us know that, you know, it can happen to all of us. And one of the things that Dr. Bonnie Henry and her, Bonnie Henry says in, in her words is to be kind, is that, you know, I don't think we need any aspect of public shaming around this, is that, you know, let's just try to educate and advise each other as we go down this journey. We've never, we've never experienced anything like this. And I think it's, you know, just a kind reminder and a gentle reminder is really what I think it takes to keep us all safe. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, one of them was, I mean, one of the women was, was I know very well, but she was horrified, you know, when she said, you know, and she realized the communication breakdown, it was a WhatsApp thing. I don't, didn't know any of, really know any of the other um, biking wives. Anyway, nonetheless, um, but you know, it is, it's important that we maintain um, our vigilance around this. And I think that's um, quite important. Um, so, uh, you know, one other part of this, there's so many components to, to all of this, but testing, um, an adequate testing capacity is still quite an issue, but recently the FDA approved pooling. Uh, what is pooling? So and not as much of an issue in Canada. In fact, in Canada, I think we have enough testing capacity, but in the U.S., and I think it's hit a lot of the new channels, is, you know, is there enough capacity for testing? So they approved something that was quite um, quite unique in the, from the perspective of, they said, well, if we can't sort of test everyone and get the results out to people quickly, why don't we start pooling the results? So the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S., approved this, and the idea here seems really, really interesting. And so what it is, is that they pull together. So if there's five to 10 people that um, need to get tested, they'll actually pull all their blood samples um, or their, in this case, nasopharyngeal swabs. Um, and, and then they'll um, actually do them as a pool or as a group. 
um, and then and then see if there's any positives. And if there's a positive, then they go back to everybody, every individual who's part of that pool and individually test them. So the idea here is that you mm. can then go through a bigger right. number of people more quickly. Um, it just, I mean, the unfortunate part is then people need to get sec- tested a second time. Um, it's not something that we're needing to do in Canada, and, and I, th- I think it is just a matter of trying to deal with capacity issues. Right. Yeah, no, it sounds like a great idea, actually. makes makes a lot of sense. One of the big problems in the U.S. right now isn't so much even the testing, but is how long it's taking to get the results. So, you know, we're still hearing stories of 5 to 10 to 14 days, and, you know, everyone knows that in the 5 or 10 or 14 days that it takes to get a result, how much more people have you exposed yourself to? Um, I'll, have to I'll have to share, Maureen, in my practice and perhaps in yours, when my patients get tested, they get a result within 24, 48 hours right mm-hmm. now. And it's fantastic. And mm-hmm. me as their um, family physician and, and with their EMR systems, I get the result really fast. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, so it, and, you know, I, I think we're doing very well in, 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 in Canada right now. Yeah, we are. In fact, I, I think the record, it was seven hours. Um, and then the most I've ever seen is, is 24 hours. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but the other thing is, and, um, you know, people get sick and then everybody they know says to them, and, they're, and they can get sick with another bug. They can get sick with some other virus or a bacterial infection. And everyone puts pressure on that person to say, you know, are you going to get tested? Are you going to get tested? The person can't even get out of bed. <laughs> they have a fever. They're sick. So I, I think we still need a little bit more education, which is why I'm so glad you're, you're joining me at 9 o'clock on Sunday evenings, 9 o'clock PST. All right. I want to talk about um, on the streets. It's called Down sometimes purple or yellow. And these are benign names for a dangerous new drug. What exactly is down? Yeah, so Maureen, uh, you know, sometime in the future, someone, uh, somebody bright is going to look back on 2020 and this COVID-19 pandemic and, and think about all the things that went right and went wrong. And one of the things that probably isn't getting enough attention is the substance use deaths. Um, in BC, we set a record um, in June for 175 deaths. And that was the highest we've ever had in BC history of um, overdose deaths. And, and, you know, we've been so consumed with the pandemic deaths themselves that, you know, these haven't gotten the attention that they need. Now, in Winnipeg, in northern Ontario, um, there's been another surge of um, um, deaths and, and people falling into overdose situations. And it's this product that's actually a combination of fentanyl and heroin. And what's happening is that it's taken over meth as one of the most popular street drugs. And so the issue that's arisen is because the, the usual pipelines for getting meth onto the streets because of COVID and border closures and so forth um, is, is that meth just isn't able to get out there. Yeah. And because meth isn't getting there, um, it's this other product. And, and bizarrely, the, a bag of this stuff costs about $30 and one hit or one consumption can be as cheap as $5. So it is something that's kind of easily available. And unfortunately, um, the, the police in Winnipeg are aware of it. Um, and so, you know, in terms of um, trying to think how we're going to manage this marine, I think we need to think of, of a couple of things. Um, Obviously, if just there's be- some... Before we just, sorry, Dr. Parhar, before we get to that, how we can manage that, I just don't want to keep Anne waiting on the line. I've got uh, sure. a caller. Hello, Anne. Sure. Oh, hello. Um, my question was to do with visors. I was just wondering, is a visor just as good as a mask? A, a face shield? Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Parhar? So... Um, that, that's a great question. Um, I, 
I, I would I wouldn't call I wouldn't say an or I would actually say an and, which is that if there's if you're really in a high exposure type area, um, I would uh, for example a healthcare professional. So when I'm in clinic and I'm seeing patients, I, and and because I'm seeing so many patients and and there's potential patients that are sick, I wear a mask and a visor. I think for the general public, um, a mask is probably enough. And if you're worried about something splashing, then wearing some sort of eye protection. We talked about eye protection as being a possible entry point um, would be useful. But I don't know if everyone absolutely needs to be wearing a mask and a visor unless you're in that sort of high-risk environment. Um, um, that's not a recommendation right now. Right now we're saying for if you can't two-meter distance that you should be at least wearing a mask. And, and the visors are, are new. Really, we haven't got the uh, research, the evidence about visors yet. Mm. Yeah, and, and like I said, it's really in environments where you're expecting a splash to occur or, or some, um, um, like I said, if a, a, a physician or a nurse or an OT or mm-hmm. physiotherapist or RT is working in an environment where there might be a splash of some bodily fluid, that's probably where you're going to um, want, the, want the visor. Um, I, I, I do wear one in the clinic when I'm seeing patients, but that's because something may happen unexpectedly. Thanks, Anne, for the question. Appreciate it. So we'll get back to down. Um, down sorry to interrupt or, you there. So No, 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 not at all. And I guess with the any substance use, this is where we're going to make an exception. You know, we're talking about distancing. But really, if, I mean, ideally, if um, people are using substances and they're not ready to totally abstain, and Maureen, you've been a great advocate for saying this is a health condition that needs treatment. But if you're not at the point of being able to absolutely stop the substance use, then, then please think about going to a consumption site where you can have supervised consumption and just help people around you should something um, go awry. And then secondly is not to be using alone. So as much as we say to physically distance, this I think would be the one exception where we don't want people to use substances, especially mm-hmm. substances like down where we're not sure what the composition is. And if there is too much fentanyl or carfentanil in there, that it could lead to death. Um, we don't want people using alone. So please, um, if you are using substances, um, that, that, that make sure you're, you're not alone when you're doing that. Yeah, it's so tough, um, you know, the substance use for people. And, and I see it um, for in my clinical practice where, you know, people will talk to me about their spouse's use of um, substances, you know, long-term chronic daily use of different drugs. Yet these people are, you know, well, before the pandemic, they were driving downtown <laughs> to the um, White Towers, the Ivory Towers, um, you know, and, and the big corporate jobs. And, and um, but, you know, substance use d- does not discriminate. And, you know, lots of people have mental health issues and they're often self-medicating. Um, so it's, it's such a challenge. And I imagine that, you know, with the added stress, it'd be even more challenging um, in a pandemic for many. But I, I just want to get to um, the mask, just getting back to it. It just seems the subject of the of the day. Um, we're seeing the cloth masks everywhere now with all different kinds of fabrics, all different colors and designs. Do they actually work, Dr. Parham? We've got about 30 seconds. Yeah, so the short answer is uh, they do work. And uh, ideally, what you want is a mask that, um, that, that a cloth mask that may have several layers of, uh, of cloth in them, so several different um, um, layers of fabric. Um, they essentially all work. Um, and and, and so what you're doing is you're stopping respiratory droplets from going out of the um, mask and exposing others. So they do work. Um, there's some fabrics and some research being done on which fabrics are the best. But ultimately, um, cloth masks and we purposely say non-medical masks because we're trying to save the medical masks for medical people um, um, and, and, and nursing people and others. There's a whole new reason to be 
proud to be a Canadian, and this has gone around the whole world. Of course, we're talking glory holes, and joining me on the line to talk about this sex tip and a few others outlined by the British Columbia CDC this week is none other than Eric, the sex nurse. Hello, Eric. Hello. A glorious evening to you. Oh, yes. <laughs> it has been a glorious day indeed, for sure. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about this subject. I, I have to say I was interviewed throughout the week um, on a number of different shows about this subject. Um, and so I was asked this question, so I'm going to ask you. Um, not to put you on the spot, but for the listeners, please define what a glory hole is. You know, glory holes are easy to find. I actually worked at a bathhouse at one point doing testing there, so I can tell you what they do. (laughs) (laughs) Let's stick with what they they are. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So a glory hole is basically, uh, imagine just a, a wall and there is a hole in it. And sometimes a phallus can come through said wall and, I don't know, you can do what you want with it. Maybe a hand job or fellatio. It's kind of just like a barrier, and then you don't know who's on the other side. I gave such a much more clinical answer <laughs> to Jill <laughs> Bennett this week on uh, the Jill Bennett show, um, but that was okay. She was nervous to ask me. I could tell, but um, but thank you. I like that description, and you actually have uh, in, uh, clinical experience with um, with glory holes. You know, interesting. This news has also reached the vice president of U Porn, Charlie Hughes, who has stated that the company will offer a hundred thousand dollar grant to support the construction of glory holes BC wide, um, wow. as if we didn't have enough of them. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what are you doing this long weekend? (laughs) Exactly. Unemployed? Have we got a $100,000 job for you? We've got a six-figure job for you. Pretty easy. You need one tool. (laughs) Okay, bad joke. (laughs) Okay. In and amongst that particular advice, and the advice was utilize glory holes because it's, it's, it's considered safer sex. Um, you know, the one problem that I had with it was not that I'm not promoting glory holes, but I'm not suggesting you go out and, you know, find a glory hole tonight. Um, but is that it's anonymous and it's meant to be anonymous. And did you find that uh, in the bathhouses? Was that the case, Eric? Yes. So it it depends. There's different types. This sounds weird. So there's different types of glory holes. And here I am, a glory hole expert who's going to tell you the different types. Just follow my Instagram. I'm going to do some, yeah, I'm going to do some glory hole research soon. Go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. So basically there is, um, there is the anonymous type of glory hole. So someone could set up their apartment so that when you first walk in their apartment, all there is is the glory hole, right? So then you guys do your business. Mm -hmm. And then once you're done, you leave. That's one type of glory hole. And yes, anonymous is the key there. At the bathhouse, there's there's different types. Um, so a bathhouse, for those who don't know, is a place where people go and they cruise for sex. And it is consensual sex. Um, right. So there's a glory hole in a lit area. So you could technically see what's on the other side, just one part of it. So you could see the, the phallus there. Uh, or there is a dark room where there's the glory holes there and you don't know who's on the other side uh, or if there's anyone even there. You have to feel around and find out. Right. So I was just curious about the contact tracing. Uh, I noticed that I've gone into a couple of outdoor restaurants. I won't go on the inside. And um, because it's 19 times more contagious if you eat indoors than out on the deck. Um, 
and uh, they did take my name and, and phone number. Uh, I gave him an alias. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we have to be honest here. <laughs> Gloria uh, Hole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> my name is Gloria. Um, okay. Anyway, and uh, but you can't do that contact tracing in bathhouses, typically. Yeah. Or can so you? I don't even think. I don't even know if, if bathhouses are actually even open right now. I don't know if it's part of the phase or not. Um, so that, that's a whole different story. But I guess the point of a bathhouse is to be anonymous. Um, so you can't really contact who's been in contact with who. And if they did do contact tracing, there is uh, an in and out point, which is regulated. Okay. So I guess what would happen is they would say anyone who was here between this time and this time has the potential of being exposed right. and would need to get tested. Okay. Um, these are also found in lavatories as well. Going back to my Catholic school days, the lavatory. <laughs> uh, but I just wanted, this is a side note, and this is just from being blonde. I was <laughs> battleboarding today, and I saw an entire, like it was a, probably a 40-foot craft, and there was all there were all these nuns on it. It's just not a scene that you normally see anyway. <laughs> um, all in their habits, and, you know, there I was, you know, just paddleboarding by, saying hello to the sisters, and I'm, I'm like, did I do something wrong? Am I guilty? Um, but anyway, that's just complete side nothing. Thing. Um, but, uh, we're, we're, oh yeah, they, these are in lavatories. They could literally be found in, in restaurants, fancy hotels. Could they not be? They could be found anywhere. If mm-hmm. anyone sets them up or makes them themselves, like where there is a will, there is a way. Right, exactly. And, and with this $100,000 grant, I, I imagine it doesn't cost a lot of money to create one hole um, in a wall or maybe three or whatever, whatever bathroom you're in. But, um, we're going to be looking at those lavatories quite differently, um, coming up. Uh, I guess the question is, are people going to accept them or want them in a public area? Cause then are you then promoting people to go there? Or are you promoting certain acts in which you may not want to have happened there? Uh, so I guess it kind of raises a bunch of questions. But if we go back to Dr. Bonnie Henry, be kind, be calm, <laughs> do whatever you want, <laughs> whatever you do is up to you, no judgment. Um, Isn't it like be kind, be patient? So if there's someone using the, the the urinal or something else when there's a glory hole there, just be patient till they're done and then, yeah. Exactly, be nice. Um, sex during a global pandemic can be risky business. And so this is why we're seeing the CDC and the BC CDC and other organizations, infectious disease organizations around the world um, providing tips. You know, finally, sex is getting some action. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, and so they there have been some other, um, there's been some other wisdom that has been shared um, by these. And so, you know, avoiding face-to-face contact and kissing during sex. Like a lot of people aren't getting that. They're not really understanding um, that. But um, what are some of the other ways that people uh, can be safe during sex, pandemic or not? Pandemic or not. Yeah, I, I guess the, the main thing is to know uh, your exposure. In terms of like looking at COVID, you're like, if I walk into a gym and they ask me, if I've been out of Canada, have I been in contact with COVID with anyone? If I was to have like a new sexual partner, maybe this would be the right time and place to ask them those questions if you felt comfortable. But uh, in terms of other safe sex, uh, there's condoms are the most conventional and well-known uh, way of doing it, but also so is being up to date with testing. So basically having a baseline to know, hey, like, uh, 
I have no STIs right now. So you can start helping uh, other people as well by if you have sex with them and you get something, at least you can tell someone. So I would say contact tracing and partner notification is a huge way uh, for having safer sex. Absolutely. The other thing is um, during a pandemic, we have to think about other ways to be safe during sex. And so we have to, you know, I mean, short of taking somebody's temperature, because <laughs> um, <laughs> that would be just oh, so I'm really hot right now. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you are hot. Um, but it has a whole different meaning in, in a pandemic. But if you're feeling fine, you have no symptoms, you know, you can still have sex. But if you're feeling sick, skip the sex. But sometimes it's been a while for some people and they're pretty, they get pretty excited and, and you know, the um, heart takes over the head, if you will. And, uh, you know, and so sex is also very important for mental and social and physical well-being. And they might think this is their only opportunity, you know, so I think during a pandemic, it's, it brings a, about a whole new danger. Absolutely, it does, because uh, as we know, as human nature, as soon as something is unattainable or you're not supposed to have it, suddenly it is that much more of something that you desire. That's exactly right. We've got John on the line from Winnipeg. Hello, John. Oh, hey. hey, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, this, uh, this practice of glory holes has been, uh, been in use for th- thousands of years. Uh, like the Mennonites and Hunterites and different religions use this to uh, prevent birth defects in their cultures because you have uh, colonies that are a very closed society and you have a variety of, of uh, defects in, in the children if you have same partners. So you have to bring in some other people from other cultures to have this. Uh, it's a secret. Right. It's, it's, it's kept secret who has the practice done like this is not uh, known who the partners are but this is a, a very uh, kind of a uh, well-known practice in, uh, in different religions going back thousands of years oh. in, in different cultures thank you so much for that john that's so interesting and it makes perfect sense that's fantastic Eric, the sex RN, is on the line with me, and we are talking about glory holes and and how now we don't just have to worry about safe sex, but we have to worry about um, catching or transmitting COVID-19. And so uh, virtual sex, what do you think of that, Eric? Yeah, I think virtual sex is, is more and more common. There are so many different types of apps and websites for which people can access I think it's a perfectly viable source. I mean, the the best sex you can have is with yourself. And I say that truthfully because mm-hmm. that's how you begin to explore what feels good and what does not feel good. And you can start to relay that onto your partners as well. That's right. And that's the safest sex. And then the best sex for women to have with themselves is actually with the womanizer. <laughs> Which is, which is Product a placement. Love it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a clitoral <laughs> stimulation device that is amazing. Uh, I've been prescribing it, if you will, in my clinical practice for about three years now. And, um, you know, I get so many of the same comments like, you know, it's fantastic. You don't have to do anything. The device knows exactly where it should be. All of those um, issues women have had with men perhaps in the past or, or not necessarily other women, but um, because women, when they're have sex with women, they tend to have better orgasms and more frequently. But the other thing that has come about here is um, sex positions. You know, so the BDC, the BCCDC is also getting into the sex position world. That's right. And, yeah. you know, you know, suggesting you choose sex positions that limit face-to-face contact. 
which I... The good old missionary is no longer the standard. Bye-bye missionary, exactly. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> goodbye boring. Hello, excitement. Um, <laughs> Eric, on that note, <laughs> I'm going to uh, ask you your fate. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I'm going to let I'm going to let you go. <laughs> let me go try it. Okay, I, I get where this is going. God, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me and having a very frank, straight up uh, conversation about glory holes. Glory to you. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.